Bring it in, everybody, on me. Another episode of the Read Option. Ripping on a Friday, beautiful Friday. Hope everybody is getting ready for an awesome weekend. This, weirdly enough, kind of feels like my Sunday because I have to work this weekend and I had the last two days off, or today and yesterday off. Went out, played some golf, uh, you know, had some beers with a, with a buddy of mine, hung out. It was a great day, great couple of days, but. I hope everyone else is getting ready for uh, a beautiful summer weekend as the world seems to be opening up more and more. It feels like we're, you know, going to have a relatively normal summer. It still feels a little odd going places without a mask. It still feels a little bizarre just walking into a restaurant or walking down the street and, and seeing more people without masks than people with masks. But all in all, it's hard to complain. You know, we've got good weather. We've got good times. We get to see friends and family. I got to see family last weekend for the first time in what seems like literally years, because in some cases it has been almost two years. So it's been, it's been great. It's been great. And of course, when things are going good, you know, we have the U S open going on. The NBA playoffs are in full swing. What that means for Philly sports fans is that, everything else is going to suck, right? Like everything else in the world can be great, but the Sixers are going to find a way to ruin all of it. And that is exactly where we're starting today. And look, I try really hard to be unbiased on this show. I really take my fan support out of it. And I really believed on the podcast I did on Monday night, it came out on Tuesday with Vito, that the Sixers were the favorite at that time. And what ends up happening? The Sixers absolutely shit down their pants, not just once, but twice. And so forgive me for being completely biased here, but holy hell, or not biased, but just showing my fan side because I can't, I can't with this team. I can't freaking do it with this team. It is unbelievable how bad they were. Like, how are you, how are you up 20 in game four? And then you're up 25 going into the fourth quarter against the Atlanta fucking Hawks. And you can't find a way to win either of those games on your home court, the best home court advantage in the entire NBA. And you can't find a way to close that game out. Only two Sixers scored in the second half. Embiid and Seth Curry. Like, I'm not going to fault Seth Curry here at all. He's the only one who does not deserve any blame in these games because Seth Curry's been having the playoffs of his life. And meanwhile, $150 million Tobias Harris doesn't know how to freaking play basketball anymore. He's not playing well defensively. He's not playing well offensively. There's no, there's no rhythm at the end of a close game. And Rosillo has pointed this out multiple times. When, when the Sixers get into tough... Tough games, close games down the stretch. They get tight, and they have no idea who's getting the ball. Because giving the ball to Joel Embiid means he's going to get doubled. So, yes, Embiid can get fouled and go to the line, but in the playoffs, he's not getting those fouls as much as he probably should be getting them. So now, what do you do? Well, he should pass it out, but there's no second option. I mean, Ben Simmons has become a complete liability in the fourth quarter. Both, like... The fact that Trey Young put up 18 assists and was limited to 25 points in game four, you know, I can live with that. You know, I can't live with the loss, but that stat line, you know, it means that they're playing good defense on him because he's not the primary score. Well, what do you say in game five when he drops 39 and they scored 51 points in the last 15 minutes of gameplay? 51 in a 15 minute stretch. It is inconceivable how poorly managed from a coaching perspective, from the the individual player's perspective, nobody on this Sixers team wants to close out a game. They look like the best team in the freaking league through three quarters in back-to-back games against the fucking Atlanta Hawks. And look, this is no disrespect to Trey Young. Trey Young has been immaculate in this series. Some of the best point guard play I've seen in a long time. And I've made the comparison. He reminds me a lot of of Steve Nash, but if Steve Nash played in 2021, which means he'd be shooting, you know, six or seven threes a night, he'd be scoring a lot more. But 
the 18 assists from Trey Young in game four. I mean, he's looking to pass the ball. He wants to throw up lobs to Clint Capella. And I get Embiid's hurt. I get it. All right. Embiid is battling through injury. And there are going to be people who say you got to give. I'm not giving Joel Embiid a pass here. He had a wide open, borderline uncontested layup to win the game against Atlanta or tie. I don't remember what the score was in that final possession in game four. And people are saying like, well, he had no lift. The dude's seven foot two. It's a layup. He didn't need lift. He didn't need to dunk the ball. He needed to lay it in. And he didn't even hit the fucking rim. He was so off. And no one wants to fault Embiid here because Embiid, go, where the Sixers go are, is where Joel Embiid goes, right? Like there is a direct correlation between when Embiid's healthy and Embiid is doing his stuff, the Sixers win. But down the stretch, throughout his entire career, with the exception of the Utah Jazz game when he hit that ridiculous step back three to tie it and send it into overtime, Embiid is not a clutch player down the stretch in tight games. He isn't. He turns the ball over. He puts up a three when he shouldn't be taking a three. He gets way too conservative about backing guys down. And look, when he if he can get to that, that mid-range spot where he can face up and hit a little fadeaway too, I'm okay with that shot. But Embiid, even though Clint Capella is a, you know seven foot seven one, Embiid has significant weight on him, and he's not willing to bang it in, into the post down down the stretch. Which like that's when he's if he's going to get fouled, that's how he's going to do it. And he had an opportunity in game five at the line with two, with two free throws, and he missed them both. They still had a chance to come back, and at least if he hits both of them, and then you foul Atlanta, they would have had about eight seconds to come up the court and have a legitimate shot to uh, tie the game, or you're, you're making Trey Young or Bogdanovich or, or any of these guys go to the line to try to make it a three-point lead again. And you're putting the pressure on them. And Embiid missed both of his freaking free throws. So I, I am, I'm not a basketball coach. I, I, it's hard pressed to even say that I'm an analyst. I love the game. I follow the game religiously. I have no fucking clue how to fix this team. None. It's just not in their DNA. And look, for as negative as, negative as I'm being, they can come back and win these two games against Atlanta. But that felt like game five felt like a dagger. It felt like a dagger straight into the heart of this Sixers team. The responses in the, the, the post-game presser sounded like a team that quit. Sounds like a team that has given up on this series. We saw them quit against the Celtics three years ago. We saw them quit against... Uh, most of the team quote, with the exception of Jimmy Butler, against Toronto in that game seven a couple years ago when the Kawhi shot falls. We saw them quit last year in the bubble when that team was terrible and Ben Simmons got hurt and Joel Embiid just up and quit. I don't think this team has the DNA. And Doc Rivers is a historically great coach but has had troubles maintaining leads in a series. And yes, they won with Kevin Garnett and Paul Pierce and Ray Allen in 2008. And yes, they went back to the finals the next year in 2009 or two years later in 2010. But this, this can't happen. All right. After, after everything that the process was putting Philly fans through intentional losing, this is the reward. This is it. Like, this is what we get. And look, the NBA hated it. The NBA punished the Sixers, and there will be people out there who will say, well, that's karma. That's what you get for losing these games. Well, you know what? The fans had, had none of that. The fans embraced it because that's what Philly fans do. They're loyal to their team. They love their team. I love the Sixers. I, I'm, I'm a diehard Philly sports fan. And when I put the fan hat on and I, and I allow my biases to come in, I am, I'm disgusted. I'm I'm appalled. I, this is some of the worst, absolute worst bullshit I've ever seen. And I saw people saying like this that was the worst Philly loss since the 2003 NFC Championship game against Tampa Bay. Sure, I mean to me, nothing will hurt more than that Kawhi loss, the Jimmy Butler steal and layup at the end to make it a game to tie, it, and then Kawhi hits this absurd shot, and like you can't almost you almost can't be mad because of how ridiculous that shot was but i'm i'm mad about this 
I'm upset. I've given so much of my time and I've had so many conversations and I've defended Ben Simmons like he was my son since the moment they drafted him. And maybe that's on me, but I don't know what the hell you do from here. If they end up losing this game tonight and it's over in six, after the way you got blown out of the water in game one, and then you come back and win two great games, and then you're up 20 and then 25, it was 18 going into the fourth quarter in game four, and then it was 25 going into the fourth quarter on, what was that, Wednesday night. If they blow this, I, I'm I'm out. I'm out on this. I, I, I'm, I don't know what to make anymore I, I i'm at a legitimate loss of words and like rational words like yes i can sit here and scream into a microphone in my bedroom alone which is literally what i'm doing right now but i don't have any more rational thoughts about this team and i hope that they come back after that and they say you know what we're not going to let that happen again and we're going to crush the hawks tonight but they did it in the last two games, and they couldn't. They, they were crushing them in games four and five. And yet, to the point, like, I, I stopped really paying attention. Like, I was watching. I had it on the background, but I was doing other stuff. And then slowly but surely, the comeback happens. And the responses, you know, Doc Rivers saying that this is, this is a thing that you have to develop over time. What? What are we talking about? Like, this isn't habitual. This team has been this way forever since they've been created for the last four years. That This is what this team is. And I don't know what else can be said. I've defended the Simmons and Embiid pairing. And you're not going to let go of Embiid, so I, you move on from Simmons? I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I'm, I mean, Simmons is shooting 33% from the free throw line in these playoffs. 33%. It's it's nauseating what's happened with this team. And Philly fans have every right to be absolutely furious. Because I, I don't I, what am I, what else are we supposed to do here? What else can't even be done? I want to come, I want to come to you guys with like statistics and be like, well, if they did this a little more, you know, I, I have I have nothing. I have nothing but pure disdain and frustration when it comes to this Sixers team because it's been it's been a decade since the process started. We're, we're, we're at the point now where it's been almost 10 years since this started. And Philly fans have bought in from day one. They embraced Hinky. They embraced Colangelo. They embraced Elton Brand. They embraced Al Horford. They embraced everybody when these moves got made in hopes that this would be the thing that finally puts them over the edge. And look, maybe if Danny Green's in this game, I know that sounds trivial. Maybe if he's in these two games, the Sixers don't blow this lead. Having that veteran presence on the court. You know, he's, they said, you know, he's been like a coach on the sidelines. Well, you know what? He can only do so much. And to think that they're, they're a Danny Green calf strain away from being this team, from what they were, I just don't buy into that. I just don't. I mean, I like Danny Green a lot, but I'm not. I'm not buying that. This team is there. There is something wrong with them. Embiid is not a guy you can close out games with. You know, Shaq's one of the greatest centers of all time, but without D Wade, without Kobe, Shaq wasn't able to close out games. You need a wing who can who can put buckets in at the end of games. And the fact that they were relying on Seth Curry as much as they were was a really bad sign. It was a really bad sign. And and on a team that prides themselves defensively, to just not – to just feel like there was a lack of effort here is just – it's disgusting. It's disgusting. Oh, all right, let's talk – it's I'm like rubbing my eyes. I'm like literally about to fucking lose my mind with this team, man. I just, I can't do it. Um, 
the rest of the NBA playoffs have actually been pretty good. Uh, since we last talked, Kevin Durant had the game of his freaking life. 49 points, 18 rebounds, 11 assists. And he did it with a, a shell of James Harden. No Kyrie. And they beat the Bucks, Take a 3-2 series lead. Only for last night, Thursday night, we saw the Bucks fight back. Chris Middleton drops 38. Uh, and, and the Bucks force a game seven. And, you know, not to tie back to the Sixers, but like this, this is exactly what you would have wanted if you're a Sixers fan. And they were actually winning this series. You know, the Sixers should be done. Sixers should be resting and getting ready for the Eastern Conference Finals. And instead, they're, they have to win back-to-back games. And I don't think they're going to. But this thing, this laid out perfectly for the Sixers to actually make a run this year. Like this was the year that they, they should be doing it because the way that everything broke, with LeBron and AD getting knocked out in the first round, right? With with a team like Phoenix, who I think they actually match up really well against, most likely finding their way into the finals. I, I, I sorry, I'm not going to talk about the Sixers anymore. The Brooklyn Nets and the Milwaukee Bucks have actually turned this into a really entertaining series because without a fully healthy James Harden and without Kyrie, these teams feel like it, this game seven could go either way. Like this is going to be the first like really locked in game seven. I know we had the Dallas Clippers series, but this series feels like it can go either way. And if Brooklyn wins and you're extending that timetable for a potential return for Kyrie, you're going to give some more time for James Harden to hopefully come back and stay healthy. Brooklyn could be in a really good spot. And then if you look at the Milwaukee Bucks, if the Bucks win, and Atlanta ends up beating the Sixers, then the Bucs are going to be set up for a really, really good chance of potentially going to the, the NBA Finals and playing, whether it's Phoenix or L.A. or Utah, you know, finding, be, getting a chance to go up against one of those teams again, which if Chris Middleton is playing the way that he has in the last couple games, which is, you know, he's actually starting to kind of, you know, he struggled there for a while. And I think now we're looking at a version of Chris Middleton, which is the really dangerous version, right? It's the version of Chris Middleton that other teams are terrified of. It's the version of Chris Middleton that makes them so dangerous because you have a legitimate ball handler in Drew Holiday. We've talked about a bunch, right? And then you, you have a legitimate end of game score. So you don't have to worry about, what is Giannis going to do in the last few minutes, right? Like Giannis, similar to what we were talking about with Embiid and Ben Simmons, Giannis is not going to be the guy that closes out a game for you, like a, a tight game. He's not. You need Chris Middleton. We saw it in game one when he hit the buzzer beater to beat the Heat. When Chris Middleton is scoring 25-plus, I, I, I think they're the favorites. When he doesn't, this team is extremely beatable. So we got a game seven in Brooklyn – I believe it's going to be tomorrow night. I, I think I think Milwaukee's going to do it. Now, look, I've been wrong a lot <laughs> lately, so who knows here, man? Maybe you just want to fade me with my NBA picks. That's why I haven't been betting or gambling on the NBA playoffs because I've just I've been wrong a lot. And look, that happens. But if James Harden's feeling a little bit better, I mean, he couldn't shoot for anything. He can't get to the to the rim because he barely can run with his hamstring. They need another, you know, 50 point night kind of a kind of a game from Kevin Durant. They need every single point, every single assist, every single rebound. And I don't know if they're going to be able to get that again. Now, I wouldn't bet against KD, and KD's the best scorer that we have in the NBA. He's arguably just the best player that we have in the NBA NBA right now. So I'm excited for that game seven. I would lean Milwaukee because just based off the trends, we've seen Chris Middleton play really, really well. But Middleton's a streaky player. You know, he'll get hot for a couple games, and then he'll have just an absolute no-show. And if he ends up no-showing game seven, then that can be really problematic, I think, for, for Milwaukee. And, you know, Drew Holiday's been really good, but Drew Holiday has to be the third option on that team. They need Chris Middleton to be the end of game, you know, end of game seven, two minutes left, need that guy to just start putting in buckets. And the way he played in game six was was awesome. But with how back and forth this series has gone, I can see this game going either way. And as I'm talking through it, I'm starting to convince myself that, you know what, maybe actually this is going to be Brooklyn in game seven. But, you know, I, I it's going to be a really, really fun game either way. I mean, Middleton, 
you know, he's doing his best against KD. You know, like, wh- what can you expect when you're going up against the greatest pure scorer? You know, I mean, KD, even when Middleton was playing him well, still had 32 points. He shot, he had 30 shots. KD goes two of eight from three. I don't think we're going to have that happen again, you know, but James Harden defensively is now a liability. And this is the thing with Milwaukee, which is that if you can hold them to, if you can shut down everybody else, I mean, the, the box scores here were crazy, right? This is the box score Milwaukee needs. 38 from Middleton, 30 from Giannis, 21 from Drew Holiday. And you got eight points from Brooke Lopez and no one else on the team only scored more than three points. I mean, PJ Tucker went one of five from three. He had three and only two guys on the Bucks bench scored uh, Giannis's younger brother and uh, Brent Forbes scored two. So they got four points from the bench and 11 points from the starters, not named Giannis, Chris Middleton and Drew Holiday. So it, you can see it's very dependent on how the superstars play, but on the Brooklyn side of it with a banged up James Harden and no Kyrie, they need those other guys to play well. You know, Jeff Green went from scoring, you know, almost 30 in that 49 point, you know, outburst from KD to putting up five going two of nine from the field and one of four from three. So they need Jeff Green to play well. They need, you know, Blake Griffin needs to play well. They need Joe Harris to figure out his shot because for a guy who's considered one of the best catch and through catch and shoot three point shooters in the NBA, Joe Harris has been just gone in this series. Uh, Landry Shamit hasn't done a whole lot, and he's really the only bench player who's been seeing minutes. You know, he had 22 minutes. No one else on the on the Nets bench had more than five, and a lot of those were like last five minutes of the game when this game was more or less completely over. So this this game this series reminds me a little bit actually of the the Toronto and Sixers series a couple of years ago, where it was like one team dominates for the two home games. Then the other team dominates for two home games, and then it's just back and forth. Like there hasn't been outside of that, what, 88 to 86 game a couple nights ago or last week, like there really haven't been a whole lot of really tight, tight games in this series. So I would expect game seven to be really competitive. I would not expect a blowout here, but I think both teams have a pretty good idea of what the other one is going to be, you know, kind of doing going into this. Uh, I'll in the West. We talked about Phoenix a lot last podcast. They're all already through. Um, Chris Paul getting nabbed from a COVID test was pretty surprising because the NBA has had a, just a ton of crazy injury news. And we're going to get into some of the – there's a big trade that got announced today, which I don't even know how it's possible because the trade deadline's over. I don't know, maybe because the season's over. I, I, I thought there were rules about not being able to actually put a trade together but Woj announced earlier today, and we'll get into that trade with the Boston Celtics and Oklahoma City Thunder. But this uh, this LA Clippers Utah series should be fun. And with Phoenix, you know, luckily for them, they still have some time for Chris Paul to get out of the COVID protocols. Now he is vaccinated. Uh, he just happened to test positive, and and luckily for them, they were you know their their series against Denver was a four game sweep, so they have some time for you know Chris Paul to leave the protocol by the time the Western Conference Finals actually get a you know kick off but Phoenix needs Chris Paul I mean without Chris Paul that Phoenix team I think will get blown out by either the Clippers or the Utah Jazz and right now it's looking like it's probably going to be the Clippers now what's concerning is Kawhi has an ACL injury now it's not a torn ACL which is good but it's, I don't know if it's a partial tear. Um, everything I've seen on it has said that it's basically just an ACL injury. So I don't know if that's a strain. I don't know if it's a partial tear. I don't know what that means. The only thing I know for sure is that it means that Paul George has to carry them the rest of the way. And if it was a fully healthy Utah team, then I would say, I think Paul George is going to be able to do that or w- wouldn't be able to do that. But now that without having Donovan Mitchell fully healthy, I don't know. I don't know what this means. Uh, I think right now it feels like the Clippers have kind of figured them out, but you know, they had big games from Reggie Jackson and Terrence Mann and, you know, Zubach had a good game and they're doing this all without Ibaka or Kawhi Leonard and, and Paul George drops 37 new career high. You know, we're getting playoff P which we haven't seen playoff P in a long time. So we'll, we'll see what the Clippers do. I mean, they're, they're a win away from their first ever trip to the Western conference finals. But this Utah team plays really, really strong fundamental basketball. And it's fascinating here, too. And it just goes to show you how different the playoffs are compared to the regular season. The number one and number two records in the NBA when the season ended were Utah 
and Philly. And now both teams are down to the four seed uh, in, in their conferences, three to two. And we'll, we'll see if either of them end up coming back. I think Utah has a better chance of coming back because you're, you know, they're going to have to rely on Paul George to score 30 plus. And that nickname 3013 is there for a reason, right? Because this is a guy who can be incredible and look like one of the top five players in the league. And then the next night can look like, you know, you forget that he's even out there. So we'll see how that series plays out. My, my thought is, uh, especially now going back to LA, that Utah really needed game five. And it looks like Donovan Mitchell is going to be a game time decision tonight. So the Clippers could punch their ticket tonight, which would be really fascinating and might actually put Chris Paul in jeopardy of missing game one. But the, the LA Clippers, they're looking like they're doing some things, but again, because of all these injuries to stars, like I can't ever remember a playoff that has been so reliant on bench play. You know, the Sixers went from having one of the best benches in the NBA to then the bench is now a liability for them. Like the starters need to play like 40 plus minutes for the Sixers in these next two games. And it's crazy that just because of all the injuries, like normally the play in the playoffs, you want your best, like the best players, the, the top three players on your team are where that team's going to go. But with all these injuries, you know, we're looking at the Nets. We're looking at uh, Phoenix. We're looking at the Clippers. We're looking at Utah. We're looking at Philly as saying, like, you need your bench to be there. And what's crazy is you look at the Atlanta Hawks, and the Hawks haven't had any injuries to their starters, with the exception of DeAndre Hunter, who missed the majority of the season anyway. So them being so healthy has helped them a lot because – you know, you have Kevin Herter who's hitting corner threes. You have Gallinari who's hitting mid-range shots and open threes. Like, Gallinari's been great in this series against the Sixers. So all of these really good teams are are heavily reliant on their bench play. And then you look at the Bucs, and the, like we said before, like the Bucs aren't because the Bucs and the Hawks are both really healthy. Uh, Phoenix, for the most part, has been healthy, despite, you know, Chris Paul kind of battling through injuries in that first series against L.A., I, I don't know, man, this it's so it's such a weird year and and the shortened season and the shortened off season, I think, has really affected people. LeBron went on to Twitter and did his whole I told you so thing, which whatever, dude, like get over yourself. Like I, if you if you really didn't want to play this the, the season, if LeBron James and Chris Paul said we're not starting as early as you want us to, there's no way there's no way they would have started the season. But. LeBron instead toughed it up, wanted to play the whole season, wanted to prove that he was the MVP. He got hurt, and now he's, you know, changing the narrative to make it seem like, oh, told you guys, told you guys the whole time this was a mistake. It's like, dude, come on. Like, you're LeBron fucking James, right? Like, you hold more power. You and Chris Ball combined hold more power than the rest of the NBA players combined. If you really, really, really didn't want to play or you wanted an extra month coming out of the bubble, they would have done that. And I get it. They wanted to start by Christmas and this whole season with the COVID testing and, and waking up early to go. It, it's been a, not a shit show, but it's been a really hard year on the players. And I empathize with that. But at the same time, to, to use that as your, as your argument, to use that as like your fall here, I think it's just a really weak move by LeBron, which, you know, a lot of the shit LeBron does is always about protecting his legacy. And if he can create that, that narrative, then yeah, he's, he's going to do that. Cause that's, that's kind of what LeBron does. Um, last thing here with the NBA, a couple of things, uh, Dallas with some major shakeups in their front office and coaching staff, Rick Carlisle's gone, their longtime GM gone. And all of it was in response to a report that came out that Luca is uncertain about his long-term future with the Dallas Mavericks. And, you know, a lot of smart NBA players have been or analysts have been alluding to this with the problem with player empowerment, which objectively is not a bad thing. But the problem with player empowerment in general is that eventually, you know, where is the line? Right. Because if you give someone an inch, they're going to ask for a mile. Right. And right now we've seen guys with multiple years left on their contracts force their way out of situations. Well, it's gotten so bad to now, if you are a rookie, like not even a rookie because Luca's not a rookie, but like three years in, four years in, however, I, yeah, I think three years in now for Luca, he's already questioning whether or not he wants to stay there long-term and he's still on his rookie contract. Like, 
that you, the field, the, the goalposts are just constantly getting pushed further and further back or further and further up, I guess, if you're talking about timeline, but more and more of these guys are going to start vocalizing their concerns. There's a report yesterday that Zion's family, not necessarily Zion, but Zion's family are unhappy with his role and how the the Pelicans have been handling him and, and building around him. And they let go of Stan Van Gundy, which was a great call. It was a terrible hire to begin with. So hopefully they can bring in a coach. Like I think a Rick, a Rick Carlisle, now that he's out there, like he would be a great fit in, in New Orleans. He's an experienced guy. He's been around the league for a long time. He's worked with superstars going from Dirk, Steve Nash, all the way down now. Actually, I think he was there after Steve Nash had already left, but um, you know, he's obviously worked with Luca and, and Dirk, and he's been around the league. He understands how to build a competitive team. He's won a championship. I think he would be a great fit for Zion. And they need an experienced coach to kind of get Zion into shape. But this whole idea of like, we need to do everything in our power to build around these guys immediately. Otherwise, before we even know if they're going to be good, like, yes, we know in the rare cases of Zion and Luca, these guys are going to be good. And I give the Hawks a lot of credit for building a team around Trey Young. You know, Travis Schlink, who's the GM of the Hawks, got a lot of heat when he was comparing, you know, he came from Golden State. And so drafting Trey Young was him kind of drafting his version of Steph Curry and wanting to build a team around him. And so far, it's looking like, it, you know, it's actually paid off. And I think if you're Luca or if you're Zion, you look at that and go, all right, well, Atlanta built around what makes Trey Young good. Why are we not building around? Like the fact that, they traded willingly traded Seth Curry away from Dallas to Philly and got Josh Richardson back. I mean, that's just, that's a mistake, you know? And when you, when you're GM, you've been somewhere for almost 20 years, like there's like their GM was, you have a coach who's been there for 10 plus years. Sometimes things just get stale and bringing in new people to try to make your, you know, generational superstar like Luka Doncic is happy. It just, it makes a lot of sense. What I don't like is these anonymous reports that come out that say, well, Luca's unhappy. And then literally within two days, the head coach and the GM are gone. That I'm not, I'm not as cool with. Um, and, and I'm all for player empowerment, but there will be a line of diminishing returns, right? There'll, there'll come a point where players having all of the power, being able to force your way out of a situation the way James Harden did, like that's bad for the league. There's a reason that nobody likes Brooklyn. There's a reason that no one wants Brooklyn to win the title here outside of the 10 Brooklyn Nets fans that exist. Like people don't like that. They just don't. They, they, they don't like seeing a guy and I'm not of the old school. Like you signed a contract, stay there forever. Like, no, like leverage your power when you have it. But the decision was LeBron after spending seven years in Cleveland, in his hometown, you know, we knew how good LeBron was. And LeBron was great when he first stepped onto the court, but he still gave seven years. Like, go, look back throughout the course of NBA history, with the exception of very few examples, like Magic Johnson in 1980, very few examples of guys who come in immediately and win. It, it just doesn't happen. And the talent pool back then is nowhere near what it was, and Magic was so much better than the rest of the league coming in. You know, that doesn't happen anymore. When you come into the NBA, you might be great. You might be the first overall pick. You're not going to come in right away and be as good as, you know, Magic Johnson was because the talent level in the NBA is as high as it's ever been. So you have to go in. You have to learn how to win in the playoffs. You need the battle scars. You need to figure out your own game. And that's why I appreciate what the Sixers have done with Ben Simmons and not giving up on him yet. But now we're at a point where it's like, all right, maybe now you actually entertain it because this, is, this isn't the first time this has happened. You know, this is four, four year, five years in for Ben Simmons. Six, I think this is six season. I, I don't know, somewhere in that ballpark. Like, we are at a point where once you see what you want to see and, and can get a legitimate evaluation while giving the player a chance to develop, that's when you make the move. You know, you have to see what you have out of these guys. It took Jordan six years to get into the, to get into the finals. You know, it, it took LeBron four or five years to get into the finals it takes time you you need that time to let these guys figure out how to get there and then once they're there and you've seen it a couple times then make your opinion on it but now if you're luca or, or any other young star you can just flex your muscles whenever you want you're james harden 
doesn't matter. I'm going to sit out. I'm going to go strip clubs in the middle of a pandemic. I'm going to get fat. I'm going to get out of shape and I'm not going to train. I'm going to throw the ball out of bounds. I mean, that was embarrassing, but he doesn't care because more and more, a lot of NBA superstars don't care about the fans. One of the things I loved about Kobe, which look, I get it in pro sports. It's not always about the fans, but we had this conversation about Naomi Osaka, like, at some point, the fans do matter because that's what makes it a professional sports. That's why TV contracts are the way that they are. That's why these guys get paid millions and millions of dollars because people want to watch them play. And so when you give a middle finger to the people that want to watch you play, guess what? They're not going to want to watch you play anymore. And so more and more, it's become this idea of like, well, I'm not happy in my situation. You know what Kobe did? This is one of the things I love about Kobe. And there's plenty of things to dislike about him. But one of the things I love about Kobe Bryant was he always believed that every time he stepped out on the court, there were going to be kids in the crowd whose parents saved up money to go watch him play. And that would be the only game that they got to go to that year. And you can call it old-fashioned. You can call it corny. You can criticize that opinion all you want. But at the end of the day, like that should matter still. It, it's why we love sports. It, it's one of the few things that doesn't feel as corporate as the rest of the world, you know, like every TV show you watch is scripted. We, we watch reality TV because you're not sure what's going to happen, but like everything else, like there's a reason that TV while TV is dying because of cord cutting and the traditional cable is not what it once was. There's a reason that leagues and TV stations are still paying billions of dollars to get access to live TV rights for sports because it's one of the few genuine things that you can watch that doesn't feel manipulated by all these outward factors. It's just you're watching the game, and it's unscripted, and what happens, happens. And fans love that. That's why we love sports. And so now to be in a place where basically your Kevin Durant's and your James Harden's and your Kyrie Irving's are, are sticking a middle finger up to fans, that's bad for the league. We already know the regular season product is is in some serious pro is some serious like shit right now, and it, the regular season product is tough. Like you have to really love the NBA to watch. But these fan, you know, part of, and I said this, you know, not, not that long ago, a couple of weeks ago, like this Brooklyn, Kevin, you know, Kevin Durant, that whole team, it feels like they're like an anti fan team because Brooklyn doesn't have a massive fan base. We saw the discrepancy in popularity in the city of New York when the Knicks were in the playoffs still. And, and the fact that they won one game and the city freaked out more than if the Nets actually won the title, you know, Kevin Durant gets into Twitter beefs with people all the time. Kevin Durant hates fans. Kyrie Irving has openly talked about how like fans aren't important. And James Harden through his actions after everything and all the support that Houston has shown him over the years, couldn't have cared less, could not have cared less to act like an absolute jackass in his way out of Houston. So I think it's objectively player empowerment and empowering players more is a good thing, but there has to be a line because once they, once players get full control, the product is going to become really tough to, to, to hold on to as a fan. Um, and I hope that Luca, you know, recognizes that. And I hope he's willing to stay in Dallas because he's been talked about as one of those guys. Like, how many guys are going to finish with the team that they started with? And I hope Luca sticks it out in Dallas. I think that would be great for the sport. Same thing with Zion. Like, I hope these smaller markets can hold on to their guys. Because otherwise, you know, at best you're getting a four-year window when they're rookies. You know, and, and that's that's about it. You know, otherwise they're going to want to leave and go to Miami or Brooklyn or, you know, New York or L.A. They're going to want to leave. And that is not good for the NBA in terms of overall health of the league. And I, I don't know what's going to fix it. I don't know if it's one of those situations where, hey, the toothpaste is out of the, you know, is out of the tube. So what do, what do we do now? But the NBA needs to reconcile some of this because on, on some level we can't have 23-year-old stars demanding their way out of a place that drafted them just four years ago. And I'm not saying that's what Luca did, but that's the trajectory that we're heading down when a report can come out. And just like that two 10 year plus vets of the Dallas Mavericks who won a title with them will be out of the building within two days after 
anonymous reports coming out about Luca not being happy. Um, the last basketball thing, and then we're going to take a quick break and talk about the U.S. Open. There was an interesting trade that happened today. Um, Brad Stevens, now the president of basketball operations for the Boston Celtics, traded Kemba Walker to Oklahoma City in exchange. He also had to send a first-round pick, um, 16th overall this year, in exchange for Al Horford. However, coming back to Boston, um, the, the, the Kemba contract is horrific, and OKC and Sam Presti have done a brilliant job of accumulating draft picks and finding ways to use their salary cap as leverage to essentially win it. And talking about how small market teams have to be creative, right? We were just talking about New Orleans, Dallas, which Dallas isn't a super small market, but in the NBA context, it is. Um, it's fascinating here. Like what Oklahoma City is doing accumulating all these draft picks, taking on bad contracts. They took on Al Horford's contract last year. And if you eat just one year of that contract, like Oklahoma city did, then all of a sudden it becomes way more tradable. So if Kemba can come back, rehab a little bit, come back next year with, with a legitimate off season, he might put up a lot of really good numbers. And the last two years of, the, of that contract is, is terrifying. We're looking at North of $45 million for Kemba Walker. And I like Kemba, but, his knees in his knees are terrible. I mean, his health is in a really bad place. So I don't know if it's going to take that last year of the contract. I don't know how much Oklahoma City is going to have to eat if they want to move on from Kemba down the road. Um, I think it'll actually be a really fun backcourt with him and SGA next year. Um, but Oklahoma City needs to, at some point, I mean, SGA is going to become almost like a lost asset here, and, and he looks to be one of the most fun players in the league. And maybe they end up trading him and picking up assets for you know a team that wants him and then will be willing, will be willing to pay him a big contract. Uh, but, yeah, I, it's just really interesting. On the Boston end of it, I don't know what that does for you. I mean, I know they liked Al Horford a lot. I know Brad Stevens liked Al Horford a lot. It's going to help. You know, I mean, Al Horford, I think, still has some life left in him, especially after missing so much of the season this year and basically just getting told to, like, go home. Um, I just – I don't really know if this if this rises, like, makes the ceiling for the Celtics go higher. I, it was an interesting option. The, the contract with Horford is far more manageable than the Kemba contract, so it frees you up a little bit from a salary cap perspective. I know I said it a little early. I don't know how this trade even happened because I don't think you're allowed to make trades right now. So I would think there's some tampering or something, or maybe they have to wait for the actual official start of the next season for this trade to be um, made valid. But for both teams, it's it's a really interesting uh, move. And I'm, I'm fascinated with what Oklahoma City is doing. Um, and, and look, for all of the curtailing that the NBA and all the punishments that they levied on Philly for the process – to look at what the the Thunder are doing and the, some of the lineups that they're putting out there and just telling their best player, their two best players in SGA and Al Horford to just stay at home. Um, I don't, it's, it shows you how far we've come from when the process first started. And for a lot of Greeny, you know, Mike Greenberg has a lot of like crazy takes. He was, he predicted this pretty well. I mean, I remember when the process was going on, he was, incredibly anti the process. He, he thought tanking was the worst thing that you could do and rewarding it is even worse. And now we've gotten to a point where it's so normalized that we don't even like, I think what Oklahoma city is doing is far worse than what the Sixers did. Yes. The Sixers had less talented teams, but they picked guys who were playing hard and, and Sam Hinkie was smart enough to like have legitimate metrics about how hard his guys were playing to kind of back up that, that support. But you know, We'll see here. Uh, I'm, I'm just, I'm worried about the NBA. I, I love, I love it. I love playoff basketball and the future of it from what seems so positive just a few years ago has quickly turned into like, all right, there are some real problems here and the regular season's a problem. The playoffs are always going to be good, but now the playoffs this year haven't been great because of all the injuries to stars. And I am always curious about what the not having LeBron factor kind of means in all of this. Um, but yeah, we'll see. We'll see. And the Sixers suck. So that's fun. Uh, let's take a quick break. Come back. The U S open is in full swing. Second round going on right now. Um, and I'll, I'll give you guys some picks going into the weekend. We'll talk some Brooks and Bryson uh, and just that whole ridiculousness. And we'll wrap up the show uh, right after that. All right, we're back. Going to wrap up the show here and uh, get everybody 
off to their weekends. Uh, Going to be an interesting weekend here. We got the College World Series kind of really coming into full swing, uh, which, you know, the Women's College World Series was electric, and that's not just because I'm a JMU guy and Odyssey Alexander and that whole storyline and the Oklahoma team and the way they could just mash the ball. Like, Women's College World Series is awesome. The College World Series is super underrated. There is something about – and those sports always need a sense of urgency, you know, Softball, actually, I don't think does because I think it's just so much with the shorter field and everything. There's, I feel like there's more home runs in softball, at least amongst like the top tier teams. But those that stuff's great. But the other the other big thing, aside from the NBA playoffs, which we should by Monday uh, have a much clearer picture about what's going on. Because I think if the Sixers and the Jazz win tonight, then I think they both play on Sunday night or maybe Monday night. So. Uh, hopefully by the next time we have a podcast coming out, we will have much more clarity about what the Western Conference Finals looks like. But to me, everyone who listens to the podcast knows I'm a big golf guy. Played yesterday, played pretty well. Got a new, got a shout out my boy Derek, uh, who who gifted me. He just got a new putter himself, so he gifted me his old one. I was still using the putter from my starter set when I was 12, and you know it's a very personal relationship with a putter if you're really into golf because it can either screw you or it can be like, you know, it's just a very volatile thing. And it's so much of it is feel based. Like for me, I always had really good feel with that starter set putter. <clears throat> but I felt like it was time to kind of make a bit of a change. And I've been thinking about getting like a mallet putter, which are, you know, the ones with the bigger, the bigger heads at the, at the bottom. And uh, he had an extra one. He let me, let me take off his hands and uh, had three birdie putts yesterday. Played played great. Not to brag, you know. I think that I think that might be some of the worst content, by the way. If just somebody talking about their golf game, because no one likes someone who's bragging about their golf game. And I'm usually not that guy. I'm a I'm a pretty good golfer. I love the game, but I think some of the worst content, unless you're like the four play guys from Barstool, is just talking about your golf game. Like people really need to be invested in you. So I'm gonna just go ahead and shut the fuck up because. What we should be talking about in the context of golf is the U.S. Open, which is outside of the Masters. The U.S. Open is my favorite major because it it's always the most challenging of all of the major championships. And the USGA does that on purpose. They want to make it as hard as possible on you. They want to see guys, you know, they want to cut line at like plus three. Like that's where they want to be. They want to see guys struggle. And I've always found this interesting there are a lot of people who watch golf and, and like the U.S. Open because they like to see the pros struggle. They like to see the pros at plus five. They like to because it's the sense of like, yeah, see, this game is hard. Like I suck at golf, but even the pros can suck at golf, which to me, I don't view it through that lens. That's not why I like it. I like to see the guys who are able to still shoot low while playing on impossible courses in the hardest conditions possible. And they're playing at Torrey Pines, which is an iconic course. Of course, the very famous uh, Tiger Woods, Torn ACL, winning the U.S. Open, was at Torrey Pines. So this is uh, the first time they've had it, I think, since then, which was 2008. And obviously, with that been going on with Tiger, it's been a pretty emotional week. But so far, you know, we're they had to delay the first day because of weather, and so they didn't end up finishing the first round. So a lot of guys ended up having to finish up this morning. And now all the tee times are kind of screwed off. We have guys teeing off at like 5.20, you know, Adam Hadwin, who's golfer out of Tennessee or Tennessee, God, Canada. Um, he's staying off at 520 today and he's at one, uh, one under uh, Rafa Cabrera. Let me say it again. Rafa Cabrera Bello, three under also teeing off at 520 today. Um, right now, the leader as we stand is Richard Bland, who I honestly don't know a whole lot about. I'm just going to be, you know, transparent with you guys. He's four under today. Uh, through 17, he's likely going to go in unless he makes a true debacle of the 18th hole here as the leader in the clubhouse after, uh, I think this is still his first round. So he might have to come out again, play like half of half of a round tonight. Um, now all those times are Eastern time. So a 520 start time is actually closer to a, uh, I guess about like a 220 start time out in the East coast. Time zones are, are hard for as much as I have to work with people in different parts of the country. I suck at time zones. Um, uh, but the U.S. Open is always a really fun event because it really is challenging the best players in the world to, to do their best. And, and seeing the best out there compete at a high level is always exciting. Um, 
we're seeing right now on our leaderboard, uh, Francisco Francesco Molinari, who has had a really rough year. He's a three under. He's teeing off today at 414. John Rahm's at two under. Louis Oosthuizen was two under. Brooks Kepka's two under. Xander Shoffley. We see Bubba Watson at one under. Uh, Matthew Wolf in his first kind of return back. He's taking some time away to get healthy. He's at one under. Matt Fitzpatrick, Tyrell Hatton. There's a lot of big names. Uh, DeChambeau, who was two over yesterday, is now back to even. So he's tied for 20th. Uh, but we've seen a lot of guys. I mean, Rory was up there. We're seeing Patrick Reed, who's not everyone's favorite. But look, people go like, tune in to watch him. Uh, my man, Tommy Fleetwood. One day, one day, Tommy Fleetwood's going to win a major. He's going to, or at least he's going to be close. I feel like he's one of those guys like Tony Finau where he, people are always betting on him uh, and it never seems to cr- uh, cl- quite work out. But I think we're in a really good spot right now with the U.S. Open. It's just an objectively fun tournament. And what I love about these golf majors, especially when you're getting to play at places like Torrey Pines, um, the scenery. I mean, you're, you're playing on the side of a freaking cliff. You know, you're playing on the edge of the world with the vast Pacific Ocean off to the side. I mean, that is that is beautiful, man. I mean, and and we all if you're a big golf fan like that is everyone wants a chance to get to go play those those places. And and just last weekend, I was talking to uh, a friend of my sister and Kenny's this guy named Jake, who uh, played Torrey Pines just about a month ago and was talking about how unbelievable it was and he said you know the rough and everything is tough there wasn't quite bad but you could tell that they were starting to get the course into tournament shape and so far I mean based off the scoring alone you know I think the rain yesterday helped soften up the course a little bit I think the greens are going to be pretty gettable but it's the rough it's it's how thick hitting out of the rough is because you can't get as much spin on it so you just have to kind of play the course a little bit differently like hitting your fairways at, at Torrey Pines is extremely extremely important um from a gambling perspective, I'll give you guys some names that you should consider betting on. Uh, Molinari right now at three under, he's had a really bad year. And I don't know what his what his numbers are at right now, like what kind of value you can get for him. You know, obviously being tied for third uh, at three under after the first day is you're not going to get the same value of him winning as you would have going into the tournament. But depending on how he does today in his second round, keep an eye on him because he's a guy who has won a major before uh, he was in the final group with tiger the year tiger won the masters and and frankly he hasn't really been the same since he he flubbed that shot on the par three i think it's about 11 at augusta so keep an eye out for for molinari because i think every once in a while you'll see a guy like we just saw it with phil who's not playing their best but it's just the right course at the right time and something clicks and then boom they're off and running and we've seen francisco molinari be a top five player in the world so if you can still get some good value on him, keep a look at it. Get in early if you really like him to win. Uh, I think that's one you might be able to get a little bit of value left because he has been so bad. Um, but again, being in third is going to drop his value. Uh, John Rahm's going to have the worst odds because he's been playing so well. You know, he had it'll be very storybook if he ends up winning his first major like this. And I'm a big John Rahm fan. I would love to see him do it. The way he handled that whole COVID situation uh, was at was at Memorial was so so classy and just like mature and how many guys would have lost their minds on that um i I just i'm a big john rom fan as a whole and i think it'd be really fun and if you want to throw if you're willing if you really believe in him you want to put 50 bucks on him you know you can get a pretty good return but by far he's gonna have the worst odds because he's, he's just been playing so well and He's two under after his, you know, in midway through his first round here. He's on 12 holes in. He's two under. Um, oh, no. Sorry. Take that back. He is two under today. He's playing even, uh, but he shot a 69 yesterday. Uh, some other names, you know, Louie, he, we saw he was in the mix there on, on Sunday with Phil at the PGA Championship. Brooks Kepka's there. Xander Shoffley's there. These guys are traditional kind of choke artists. Uh, but if you're really looking for value, you have to scroll down the leaderboard a little bit, right? You have to look at some guys who are kind of in the running, but their odds are, you know, like perfect example, guy like Patrick Cantley, you know, Patrick Cantley was one under after his first round. Now he's two or he's one over. He's been two over today. He's a guy who can string around two really good rounds in a row. Uh, Patrick Reed, he's been even today. Uh, he was at even yesterday. 
Now he's plus one. Sorry, so he was plus one today, even yesterday. Uh, Tommy Fleetwood, I probably wouldn't really touch, but mainly just because a lot of people always bet on him to win. And like I said earlier, and he just hasn't really found the tools to get by it. Uh, Rory, again, a lot of people are going to bet on him, but because he's he's kind of struggling today, he's plus three today. He was one under yesterday. That's going to be a guy who, because he's not playing as well, we, we've seen Rory kind of have these surges, and he won an event earlier this year. He's not playing his best golf, but he's never a guy that you can kind of leave out. Uh, Justin Thomas is at two over. You know, he hasn't teed off for his second round, but again, he's one of the best players in the world. So if you can still get value on these guys, especially to win, it might be worth throwing a few shekels, get a little bit down on Justin Thomas. And right now, anyone who's below the cut line, I, I have a hard time seeing, you know, Dustin Johnson was even going into today. He's plus three right now. And plus three is where the cut line is at. There's a lot of big names. You know, Victor Hovland is plus three. Uh, Paul Casey, Cam Smith, Adam Scott, Tony Finau. Gary Woodland. I mean, there's a lot of guys. Uh, Jordan Spieth is four over. Colin Morikawa and Phil Mickelson. They were both four over yesterday. So how how do those guys look? Um, I don't think the Phil Mickelson dream's happening. He's nine shots back, the leader. And I know we all. I mean, that this should just be an example of just how ridiculous that win was for Phil, considering how poorly he was playing leading into it, his age, and just not really being in contention at any big tournaments the last couple of years. Like everyone, like the, the odds on him, I think were like plus 3,500 to win, which don't be wrong. Like those are really good odds from a gambling perspective, but he should, st- he should be plus, you know, 10,000. Like he, he really, he's never going to get back to that again. Like it was such a one-off and yes, you're never supposed to say never ironically, but uh, I'm, I'm not so sure about anyone kind of below that. And I love Phil. It'd be super cool to see him pull one out here, but I, I don't think we're going to end up seeing that here moving forward. Um, some kind of under the radar names. I would look at Jason Kokrak. Um, he's a guy who played really, really well just to cut. Uh, I think what last weekend he was in contention or two weekends ago, he was in contention. He's at plus two. Uh, Brian Harmon, my, my favorite lefty other than Phil Mickelson. He's at plus one. He would be definitely a long shot, but someone that you could get really, really good value. Uh, maybe a Shane Lowry. He's a really good rough player, but to me, it's going to be, who's going to kind of, be there around the greens. And if you're going to pick anybody, I would lean towards uh, Patrick Reed. And I know people don't like Patrick Reed. I don't really like Patrick Reed, but that's where I would go for a long-term kind of uh, longer odds, but like giving yourself a chance to actually make a good chunk of chains on maybe a low risk, high reward kind of a bet. Uh, But speaking of guys that we don't like in golf, we, we could not talk about this without bringing up Bryson DeChambeau and Brooks Koepka. Now, I've been a Brooks stan for a long time. I love his approach to the game. I find it hilarious when he's walking around with a giant fucking lip in like he's, you know, in the dugout of the minor league game or something. Um, Some of this back and forth stuff with the two of them has been borderline nauseating. Um, I, I, I mean, Bryson continued it, right? The stuff on Twitter about the match was hilarious. Kepka tweeting at Aaron Rodgers, just sorry, bro. And then the weird response, like, I'm living rent-free in your head. But Bryson is the worst. He's the worst. He's the young guy that the old guys in golf like. If you're an old man, if you're if you're an old man golf, right, like you are, oh, you know, well, you got to respect the game. There's all the rules. And these kids playing music and drinking beer on a golf course. I mean, that's preposterous. Like, fuck those guys. Hate those guys. Those guys love Bryson DeChambeau. They're, en- they're enamored with how far he can hit the ball. They love the stupid fucking hat, you know, and, and it's funny because if he wasn't having a beef with Brooks, who is like enemy number one for old man golf, I don't know if they would like him. I mean, the, the to me, like the arm lock putting stuff where he has it like lined up against his left forearm, like that to me is the same thing as anchoring it on your chest when you'd see the guys with the really long putters, you know, anchored against your chest and they had to make a rule to make it that you can't do that anymore. I think the arm lock putter is the exact same thing and all of the technology and the numbers and the science and all this shit, like Bryson still hasn't figured out that like you can, you can figure all that crap out all you want, but there is a human element of golf and Bryson kicking people out, kicking people out of a tournament. Was it last weekend, two weekends ago for saying like, 
here we go, Brooksy, you know, like literally kicking guys out of that. Like who, who does that? You know, they weren't yelling racial slurs. They weren't even saying anything mean. They were just calling him Brooksy. And so the, the mental weakness of this guy, it's the same reason why he collapses at Augusta every year. You know, he's, he just uh, bogeyed another hole. So right now he's plus one. Like I've been very open about how much I can't stand DeChambeau. And look, Brooks is not, you know, you know, innocent in all this either. I think Brooks has been kind of a, you know, pretty soft with a lot of this crap, you know, doing the ad thing with Michelob for anyone who calls him Brooksy, you know, you get for beards. Like that to me, it was, was weird. And I think like you already won, you know, like Brooks just from the court of public opinion, because no one likes Bryson Brooks had already won the beef between the two of them. And yet not to mention like Bryson's never finished higher in a major than Brooks has. So like talk about living rent free. Uh, the only major that Bryson's won was the U S open last year, which Brooks didn't play in. So the only time that Bryson has done better than Brooks in majors is when Brooks literally isn't there. That's the only time. And we're seeing it again now because Kepka is just a better all around golfer. Kepka embraces the moment. He doesn't overthink the crap. You know, he doesn't go through all the, the green books and speed, you know, and look, he works on his game. Like, it's not like he, you know, he has this reputation of being like the guy who just walks up, swings it, whatever, doesn't practice. Like, no, he practices a shit ton. Like, he's constantly working on the greens. He's constantly working on his putting. But he likes, and the part of my take thing has a lot to do with this too, you know, that football player, you know, they put him in the Blake of the year because he just kind of has that mentality. Like, Brooks wants to be the cool guy in golf, which I like. You know, I think there needs to be more of that because the younger generation gravitates towards it. They don't gravitate towards Bryson. They do in a, in a negative way. You know, Bryson is so hard to stomach that he is no longer, that he made Patrick Reed no longer the most hated guy on the tour from a fan perspective. Like Patrick Reed's kind of like a second thought compared to how much people don't like Bryson. But there's a lot of people who do. There are a lot of people who do like Bryson. And, but it's the shit like he did yesterday. Like Brooks is giving a TV interview and Bryson walks behind him from like walking up on one of the greens and like jumps to try to photobomb him. And I'm like, dude, like, do you realize how not cool you look? Like, do you realize just how ridiculously immature and stupid you look? And again, a lot of that falls on Brooks too. Like Brooks hasn't been a model citizen through this. He's been kind of an asshole, but Brooks is good for golf. This, this beef is good for golf. And your old man golf, the the golf channel guys who want to talk down about all this shit, like they're doing the game a disservice because they're not going to live forever. And if you want golf to be popular, which right now it's as popular as it's ever been in a non-Tiger Woods era or in the like non-dominant Tiger Woods era, that's this is a huge reason for it. Like these Twitter back and forths and people shitting on Bryson and people shitting on Brooks and all this stuff. Like people like that. They buy into it. And I think it's great for the game, but I still just can't, I can't stomach DeChambeau. I, I, I watch him play and I get physically nauseous. And I've said it about him for a while now, which is that I don't remember an athlete being so good at so many parts of his, of the game that he or she plays and yet being so ridiculously unlikable and also not really yielding many like successes. Like Brooks won the players or Bryson won the players this year. He also won the U S open. Those are the two biggest wins in his career in every other sporting and every other golf event. He's basically been out of the picture. And if he was going up against someone other than Lee Westwood or the players, I don't think he wins that tournament. And Lee Westwood just kind of choked a little bit down the stretch. But Bryson is incredibly talented. He, it's amazing watching him hit the ball a mile. And I honestly wish, I wish that their personalities and players were swapped. You know, like if Bryson was the Brooks in this situation, was the cool guy, you know, Versus like the nerdier one who would be like the kind of golf game of Kepka. Like, I think we would all embrace Bryson, but it's the fact that it's, you know, he was the skinny guy and then he put on like 50 pounds, like in two months where you're like, wait, how the hell did this guy put on this weight, you know, and criticizing Kepka for not having abs in the ESPN, you know, naked issue. And yet now you watch, you know, Bryson walk down and he's got a big old gut, which like, Hey, look, I got a gut. Like what, you know, 
no fat shaming on this pod, but you can't criticize Brooks for not having abs and be like, I have abs. You know, I, th- I thought it was kind of embarrassing for him. And then you put on all this weight and it's like, yeah, dude, you're, you're not some supermodel and you take your shirt off now either. So, you know, where is this at? Like, he's not jacked. He's bigger and he can probably, he's definitely stronger, but it, it's just such a weird dynamic and it's getting people's attention. And I thought it was pretty weak that Bryson turned down the, and this has been refuted by certain people and his agent and whatnot, but there was an offer allegedly by the PGA to put Brooks and Bryson in a grouping together and Bryson declined. And again, allegedly. So if that is true, that's weak. That is weak sauce. And that is mentally weak. And I think that's all of Bryson's thing, which is all this big bark, all this big, I'm going to hit the ball a mile. I'm going to use these metal spikes, even though everyone else on the tour doesn't use them because it fucks up the green. It's, it's really like, you need to back that up, dude. Like if you're going to talk all that crap, you're going to jump behind while Brooks is doing a TV interview just to kind of get your little jab in. But then you get an actual chance to kind of go one-on-one with him. And you're like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm good. Allegedly. Allegedly. Have to throw that. All right. Uh, that's all we got. Enjoy the rest of the U.S. Open. Enjoy the College World Series. Enjoy the playoffs. Pray for the Sixers and my mental health because, uh, I, look, I, I understand as a grown man, I should not have my mental health be – dependent on what the 76ers are doing but god damn it when they lose it affects my day and look, i can be self-aware enough to know that i shouldn't be that way but i'm always going to be that way because that's what being a fan is it's being literally an insane person especially in philly uh we'll be back on monday or i guess monday night we'll record tuesday we'll come out we'll update the nba playoffs we'll talk about the rest of the u.s open how that finished out uh and i'm um, you know we got we dabbled into the college football world a little bit uh, obviously football is right around the corner. So I'd like to get the guys on, do some college football breakdown and uh, hopefully have a guest coming next week that I'm very, very excited about. So uh, we'll talk to you then. Enjoy the weekend. Follow us on social media at Jeff underscore Gimple at read option pod. You guys know where to find it at this point. And thank you once again, thank you guys for listening. We love you all. And uh, we'll talk to you guys again here soon on the read option. Thank you easy, everybody.